0: Good morning, raise your hand if you're awake this morning, all right, we've got a majority here, love it, Ezra chapter 8, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 8 this morning, Uh, my wife reminded me I need to introduce myself before I jump into the message, so hey, my name is Seth, I get to serve as the youth director here at Free Free, and I'm sure you guys are asking yourselves, does this man have the greatest job on the planet? I'm glad you asked, yes, I do. The most spectacular job on the planet. We actually just had a costume party last night. This place was all decked out. I was a ninja. Elijah was dressed up as me. It was awesome. He was super on point, by the way. Uh, I felt, I actually, it made me very happy inside. Um, So yeah, great time. And I also have the joy and privilege of being able to go through Ezra chapter 8 with you guys this morning. So, A little bit of review, last week Adam Marshall ended up going through, in Ezra chapter 7 we looked at King Artaxerxes' uh, decree that he was giving to Ezra. Namely that Ezra would be going back to the land of Jerusalem, taking a wave of returnees with him and was able to appoint magistrates and go help institute um, some of the worship back at the temple and to teach the nation the law of their God. And so in Ezra chapter 8, now we're going to be following Ezra as he and a new wave of returnees head back to Jerusalem. Um, And I want you guys to bear with me because we have a lot of ground to cover. They cover a lot of ground in the book and we have a lot of verses to go through in the chapter. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into it. Jesus, you are an excellent God, so great, so holy, Lord, so highly to be praised Worthy are you, Lord, to receive honor and glory and power forever and ever. Lord, I pray that as we jump into Ezra chapter 8 this morning, Lord, that you would teach us. God, that you would help me to get out of the way of your message that you want to proclaim and that we would see you clearly, that you are a great God and a shepherd of your people. Lord, that we know that we can entrust ourselves to you. You know what you're doing and you're an excellent God worthy of our worship. So Jesus, please lead us this morning, magnify your name in our midst, and it's in your great name that we pray, amen. All right, so I want to give us a quick little timeline for the book of Ezra that I think is going to be helpful. Um, As we've been going along through the book of Ezra, we've we've covered a lot of ground, we've covered a lot of years, and I know it can be easy to kind of get lost and kind of lose the storyline of where we've been. So let me give us a historical storyline here. And I'm going to start off this timeline at 586 B.C. This is when Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. And by the time you end up getting to about 540 B.C., there's a huge uh, change of powers. world powers at that time where the nation of Persia came and conquered the nation of Babylon and took over the territories that they had once controlled. And a year after that, because the Persians are now in control, Uh, King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree for the first wave of Jews to be able to return back to Jerusalem. And so in Ezra chapters 1 and 2, we see Zerubbabel is coming back with a whole wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And then we move on just a few years, and what we see is that the altar ends up getting rebuilt... They lay the foundation for the temple, and temple reconstruction has begun. This is a huge highlight in the book of Ezra. They're they're getting underway with seeing the house of God rebuilt after it was destroyed by by the Babylonians. However, a little ways into it, about 536 B.C., an adversary slow the work of the temple, and reconstruction comes to a stop. And it stays stopped for about 16 years. Nothing's happening. And then in 520 B.C., then temple rebuilding resumes. Governor Tatanaeus begins to question their actions. Who said you could do this? Who are the men that are in charge? And he sends a letter to King Darius, and King Darius ends up protecting the Jews. He says, "Hey, don't mess with them." And in fact, I'm going to ref- I'm going to fund this rebuild of the temple that's happening. And then we get to 516 BC, and temple reconstruction is complete. People of God have been able to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they're offering sacrifices to them. It's a huge highlight in the book. And just like Adam mentioned last week, between chapter uh, 6 and chapter 7, there's over a 50-year gap. During that time, Esther becomes queen uh, in Babylonia, and she ends up saving uh, the, the Israelite people from being wiped out. You can read all about it in the book of Esther. And then in about 458 B.C., we have the final four chapters of the book of Ezra. And it includes Ezra, he's a scribe and a priest, leaving Babylonia, coming back to Jerusalem and ministering there. And so this is where we're going to be camping out today, right here in 458 B.C. And for the remaining few weeks that we're going to be going through the book of Ezra. So I want you guys to take a look at that. Now I invite you all to stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to go through Ezra chapter 8. We're going to read most of it. We're going to skip over some of the genealogy. You can all give me grief about it later, all right? Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. In the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. And then jump over to verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Elnathan, El Nathan, Nathan, Zachariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and El Nathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ito, the leading man at the place of Cassiphia, telling them what to say to Ito and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of Cassiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. Namely, Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river at Hava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and a 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord." So the priests and Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Hava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed in the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabat, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. You may all have a seat. Way to go, guys. Five minutes of standing. Getting our P90X in this morning. All right, so the main point I want to drive home as we go through this message is this. God will gather his own and bring them home, okay? God will gather his own and bring them home. We're going to see this in three phases throughout the book as we see God gathering the exiles as they are preparing for the journey and then finally when he brings them home. So let me take a look at the first part, gathering the exiles. Chapter 7 ended with King Artaxerxes providing a letter to Ezra to bring back another wave of exiles, to bring back a free will offering, uh, to sacrifice the Lord, and giving Ezra authority to appoint magistrates, impose tribute, and teach the law of God. And so as Ezra is preparing to return to his homeland, there are a whole bunch of people who are coming back with him. Um, So with the first wave of exiles that we read about in Ezra chapter 2, there were about 50,000 Israelites, it's believed, that ended up coming back with him. This return group, 80 years later, is significantly smaller. It's closer to about 5,000 people. But it's significant for a number of reasons. In fact, if you compare the genealogies between Ezra chapter 8 and Ezra chapter 2, you're going to see a lot of similar names. So a lot of these people who are coming back have been separated from the vast majority of their family for about 80 years. And so they're going to be reunited with those family groups once they return to Jerusalem. And this list also features some significant people that Ezra highlights. I want you guys to look at verse 2. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. I want someone in this congregation to name their next son Hattush. Please. All right. And so this is important for us to know as we go through the book of Ezra. Because Ezra is very intentional and in why he's putting down these people's names. I want you guys to remember in Ezra chapter 7 that Ezra is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. That he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so Ezra would have understood why they were exiled as a nation. Why Jerusalem had been sacked. And it was because they had forsaken the Lord their God. That's why God brought about this destruction upon them. Ezra knew it and all the people of Israel with him knew it as well. Not only was it written down in the Torah and in the book of Deuteronomy, it talked about this is what will happen to you if you forsake the the law of your Lord. Many of the prophets uh, right around the time when Jerusalem was destroyed and even well before it had prophesied that they were going to be destroyed because they had forsaken the Lord. I want to take a look at one of those prophecies here in Jeremiah chapter 16. This is what it says. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will refusing to listen to me therefore I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve the other gods day and night for I will show you no favor therefore behold the days are coming declares the Lord when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where I've driven them for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. This is very significant. This prophecy would have been very significant for Ezra and for the Israelites who were with him because they, it's teaching them, again, why God has brought this destruction upon them. Because they have forsaken him. And so as a result, they were laser Focused on being obedient to God this time around. They knew that if they were going to forsake God, it would be to their destruction. Their ability to thrive as a nation was dependent upon their submission to God's law over them. If they ignored it, they would be destroyed. Okay, so Ezra is laser focused. Okay. I need to know the law of God, I need to obey it, and I need to teach it to others. And the rest of the Israelites like, yes, that's why they were focused on rebuilding the temple. And that's why here he ends up listing two men of priestly descent, namely Gershom and Daniel. Both of these guys were descendants of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were the chief priests who served at the altar. Um, Phineas was the son of Eleazar, who was one of Aaron's sons, and Ithamar, was uh, another one of uh, Aaron's sons. His first two sons, Nadab and Abihu, died because they offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. And so Ezra's focused on bringing back some priests along with him. Ezra himself is a descendant of Eliezer. And he's also focusing on bringing back one of the sons of David because he knew the covenant that God had made with David. And he's wanting to make sure that the men are in the right places for leadership as they're heading back to Jerusalem. And because he's so focused on following the law of God, we run into a dilemma in verse 15. This is how it reads. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahaba, and there we camped three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now this is a big deal for them because they want to transport back the free will offering to the Lord. And the Levites served as essentially assistant priests in the service of the temple. And so they're wanting to make sure they're following the law of God. But in order to do that well, the chief priests need to have assistant priests chosen by the Lord who will serve alongside them. And when he looks at everyone, the 5,000 that are gathered there, he's like, dude, we don't have any Levites with us. And because he's so laser focused on wanting to keep the law of God and wanting to have everyone that's needed to honor him in the temple, he sends for them. Verses 16 through 18. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel... And all of his brothers, and I sent them to Ido, verse seventeen, the leading man at the place of Cassiphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. And so they end up sending. They're like, okay, we don't have any Levites here. They send to look for them. They find them, and within a week. These people go from, oh, we're staying in Babylonia to, okay, we're going back to Jerusalem with them. And so because of the gracious hand of their God, they have Levites now in the return party to carry the free will offering and help serve in the temple of the Lord. And so what I want us to see here is that God is gathering his people. These people who have been in exile for over a century, God has not forgotten them. His eyes are upon them. I'm, remember, I'm reminded of Psalm 38, 33, 18, where it says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. And here he is gathering them together. We're seeing sons of Israel. We're seeing Israelites or Levites. We're seeing sons of Aaron, sons of David. God is gathering all of his people that he's going to be bringing home. And I want you to recognize God does not forget his kids. He is a gracious, merciful God. He made a covenant with Abraham, and because he's faithful to his covenant, he's gathering his people to bring them back to the land that he promised to their forefathers. Praise God for his faithfulness. He is a good shepherd. Our God will gather his own, and he will bring them home, but before they can do that, they have to prepare for the journey. Okay, We see this in verses 21 through 30. All right, so the the journey ahead of them is a massive one, okay? About 900 miles to cover on foot. So I want to ask, how many of you would be down for a 900-mile hike with your whole family? Show of hands. All right, probably not too many, okay? Look, so I used to do some hiking back in the day with uh, my dad and my brother. Yeah, we're a bunch of cold-blooded killers here. Just got done playing paintball. That's my brother, Luke. That's my dad. And we used to go on hikes a decent bit growing up. Uh, I remember a time when we were down in southern Arizona. We ended up going to the Huachuca Mountains, at this mountain range that they have down there. And we went on like a 10 to 12 mile hike. And for the three of us, it's like, hey, we could do this, right? This is all right. Um, I almost slipped and fell off a cliff at one point that was covered in snow. Grabbed a hold of some. I was okay. Still here today, obviously. Um, but like it was, a, it was a fantastic journey. But I remember getting to the end of that and being like, that was exhausting, And that was a 10-mile hike. Can you imagine taking your family, your kids, your grandfolks on a 900-mile trek cross-country to Jerusalem? This journey is massive. Let me show you where it's at here. Okay, so we're looking over here in the Middle East. They would have started off right around here in Babylon, and they would have ended up having to go around the Arabian Desert all the way up here to Tadmor, and then dropping down again to Jerusalem, okay? Okay monstrous hike. They're going to be camping out at numerous points along the way. They're in unfamiliar territory. And so they definitely need to prepare for this journey. This is not some small little jaunt. And in fact, there's a a high chance that they're also going to experience trouble along the way. Um, There would have been bandits marauding parties that could be waiting in ambush along the way. And you may think, well, there's 5,000 of them. Well, yes, but they're spread out in a caravan over a large track of space. And so they could get jumped at multiple points and they have their whole family with them there. And so what do they do to prepare for this? Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Hava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves. Ezra calls the whole group to fast and to seek the favor of the Lord to grant them safe passage. And we also learn from verse 22 that Ezra was ashamed to ask King Artaxerxes for an escort. And the reason is, is because of what he told him in verse 22. He says, the hand of our God is good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And so it seemed like Ezra thought it would be duplicitous for him to say that like the hand of God is good for all who seek him, and we're seeking him, but could you send us an escort just to make sure nothing bad happens along the way? Like He felt like that would be two-faced, so he's like, you know what? We're going to trust God on this. We're looking to obey him. We're going to seek his favor by fasting and praying, and we're going to put this in his hands for him to take care of us. Brothers and sisters, do we have that kind of perspective? Do we believe in a God who is so big, so sovereign, that he can protect and guide his people? That we don't necessarily need a bodyguard to get us across this land to make sure that we're safe, but we have a God who is more than capable of protecting us. Now, I'm not denying practical wisdom when you can implement it, but is our view of God such that we don't see that as a need, as something we must have? Are we resting in the security that's provided by the sovereign hand of our great God? He's so much bigger than you think he is. So much more powerful. And guarding his people is a child's task for him to perform. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's put our trust, our trust in our great shepherd who watches over us. What peace, what rest there is to be found for those who seek him, who take shelter under his wings. But there's a second element to this journey that could entice the interest of marauding parties along the way. And that is the enormous amount of money that they are taking with them on this trip. Okay? Okay? Uh, I want us to take a look at this in verses 26 through 27. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and the list goes on. This would have translated to nearly 4 tons of gold and 25 tons of silver. And I don't think you need me to mention, that's a lot of money. And they were obviously really nervous about this journey. So I remember a, a time when I was growing up, we were going on a, a family reunion, and my dad ended up giving me 300 bucks to hang on to. My dad was a big believer in not putting all of his eggs in one basket. And he was like, all right, Seth, I need you to hang on to this. In case we need it, we run into a bad scenario, you are covered. But I want to tell you, I was so self-conscious, carrying around 300 bucks in my wallet, Now, this is back in the early 2000s where $300 is worth a little bit more than it is today, okay? And for a kid in high school, like a sophomore in high school, I was was like counting my wallet every single night, making sure all the 20s were there, right? I was like super self-aware of everyone that was around me. I started carrying a hunting knife on me in case I had to like get into mortal combat with anyone. Like I was just nervous about this. You can imagine a 900-mile journey with your families. If they find out that we're toting all this cash, we are in trouble. And so they're seeking the Lord, and they're asking Him to provide for them, to watch over them. And then they're entrusting these finances to reliable men. I want you to read about in verses 28 through 29. And I said to them, these being the priests that they just got done weighing out all the gold and silver to, "...you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord." So what Ezra is doing here is he is entrusting this free will offering to the Levites. This is fitting. They are the guys who handle offerings in the house of the Lord. And they are entrusted with guarding it all the way back to Jerusalem. And so what we're seeing is that Ezra here is being obedient to the word of God. He's weighing out, he's making sure they're weighing it out here. Okay, now we know exactly how much we're bringing. When we get back to Jerusalem, we're going to weigh it again to make sure that it is all here. And he's entrusting it to the right men and reliable men to take care of it and ensure its safe transportation to Jerusalem. This is an example of accountable biblical stewardship, and surprise, surprise, it works out for them really well. Okay, When we follow the word of God and are obedient to what he calls us to do, this, things generally tend to work out well. So, so praise God. At this point, God has gathered his people together under the wise supervision of his priest Ezra, They've prepared for the journey spiritually. They're prepared financially, bringing back with them the free will offering to the Lord. And now their journey is underway. God has gathered his own and he will bring them home. And this gets to the final phase of uh, the chapter and that is when God brings them home. So this 900 mile journey from home took the group roughly four months to complete. Again, imagine traveling by foot with your entire family for just under four months. This is not a small jaunt. They were covering, on average, about eight miles per day. I mean, they would be ready for all sorts of marathons by the time they got done with this trip. This journey is reminiscent of Israel's exodus from Egypt. There are so many parallels that we see. So the people of Israel, in leaving Babylon, just like when they left Egypt, are leaving a foreign country. And they're doing so by the favorable hand of their God. They're being protected by their great shepherd, the Lord, from harm along the way. And they're going to a land that he has promised to them where they can freely worship him. And so they go. Verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. God is taking care of his people. But I want you to notice the play between Ezra's godly leadership and God's sovereign guidance. Because when I was thinking through what my main point should be for this message, I was like, should it be that Ezra gathers the people of Israel and brings them home or that god gathers the people of Israel and brings them home and the truth of the matter is it's it's both god is working through Ezra to bring them home and Ezra doesn't downplay his role i want you guys to see it Ezra uh, chapter 8 verse 1 these are the heads of their fathers houses and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from babylonia and then look again at verse 15 I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava. And then again, verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. And again, in verse 24, I set apart twelve of the leading priests. Ezra is not downplaying the role that God has called him to give. He recognizes God has given him a key role in leadership in in bringing this uh, next wave of returnees back to Jerusalem. But he also recognizes that his success is entirely dependent upon the Lord. That's why he says in verse 18, he says, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. And then again in verse 22, The hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And again in verse 23, So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And then again in verse 31, The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And so, brothers and sisters, I want us to ask, do we live like this? Do we have this kind of mindset? Do we realize that God has given us a role to play in what we do, how we live, the decisions that we make truly matters? You have a role to play here in Fremont, Nebraska, and, and in the life that God is calling you to live. So how you lead your family, your friends, those around you, how, le- how you lead your own soul truly does matter. But also realize that your success in this life does not ultimately depend on your own wisdom and your own power, but it depends on the good hand of the God who leads you. God alone establishes our work. God alone grants us success unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchmen labor in vain. You see, apart from God, we can do nothing. But with him, nothing is impossible. So are we trusting in him to guide us, to lead us, to determine the end result, and to establish the work of our hands? Let's learn to be a people who rest in the sovereign hands of our great God, even as we seek to serve him with all the might that he's granted us. Verse 32, we came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days. At this point, they have finally returned home. God has brought them back to their own land. And how do they respond? Well, how should we respond if we made a prayer request to God to grant a safe passage and then we end up finally making it to where is uh, bringing us? First off, they end up bringing the, the money that was weighed out to the priests into the house of the Lord in verse 34, The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. They were good stewards, the finances that were given to them, and it's all there. So they're able to make these free will offerings to the Lord. And then the second thing they do is found in verse 35, and that is they worship God. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. And this is huge because for this group of returnees, these 5,000 people, this would be the first time in their lives that they were able to sacrifice to the Lord their God in the land that he had given to them at his temple in Jerusalem. They are home with their Lord in their ancestral homeland, worshiping the Lord their God. After remaining in exile for 128 years, they've now been reunited with their family and they're able to freely worship the Lord, having returned by God's good hand to the land that he has promised to them. They are home. This is a beautiful ending to an encouraging chapter. And so the main point I want us to see through all of this is that God will gather his own and he will bring them home. We saw this when he was gathering the exiles as they prepared for the journey And as he ended up bringing them home. So now we need to ask the question, how should this change the way I live? An application. An application number one, I believe, is to trust the Lord. This is probably the clearest application we have from this passage. Brothers and sisters, the character of our God does not change. God will gather his own. He will bring them home. Are you trusting in the Lord to lead you in life? Are you trusting in his sovereign hand to watch over you, to take care of you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Right? He is truly with his people, with them every step of the way. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Why should I fear man? Is that kind of faith, is that kind of trust dictating your life? Is it dictating your peace? Or are you allowing your external circumstances to affect the way you feel and respond in life? Are you leaning into the sovereign hands of our great God that is upon you? Because his favor is good. His hand is good upon all who seek him. Learn to rest in the hands of our God. He's powerful enough to tackle your problems. And he's merciful and compassionate enough to want to do so. The second thing I want us to consider is to seek the Lord's will for your life. Have you set your heart like Ezra to know the word of God, to do it, and to teach others? Because Ezra's working really hard in chapter 8 to make sure he's doing things by the book. But if we're going to be a people of the book, right, if we're going to be obedient to, to the word of God, we have to know what it says. Do you know what the word of God teaches? Are you seeking to understand it and to do it and to teach it to those who are under your leadership? You see, godly leadership is a powerful blessing for those who are under it. And it is a tremendous responsibility for those who have been entrusted with it. And so I want to ask the men in the room, are you leading your families in knowing the Lord and following Him? Mothers, are you leading your children in knowing the Lord and following Him? Are we a people who know the Word of God, we're obedient to it and we're teaching it, to those around us because godly leadership is such a huge blessing from the Lord. Let us be that kind of people. All right, that's all I got for today. Let me close this out in prayer. Jesus, you're a great God. Lord, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. Lord, there's no one who cares about us more than you. Lord, there's no one who is more powerful than you are. Lord, you said that no one will be able to snatch us out of your hands. Lord God, that you lead, you guide, your shepherd, your people. And so Jesus, teach us to trust you. God, help us to, to really devote ourselves to know your word and to be obedient to it because we realize that we're blessed when we do so. God, that we're walking in wisdom way beyond our years. So Lord, teach us to trust you. Help us to love you with everything that we have. Lord, knowing that you will bring us home. You will guide us through every storm in life until we reach heaven's shores. Lord, you're great God. Please fill us with your spirit as we go about this week to truly love you and serve you with everything we have. That's in your great name we pray. Amen.